Well, good morning to you on this uh, very hot and sultry uh, July morning here. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to take them and turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. While you're turning there, let me remind you of where we are and where we're headed. Because we actually find ourselves this morning at a major turning point in our study of 1 Corinthians. We've been studying this book for many months now. And for the last several weeks, we have been in a major section of 1 Corinthians, chapters 8 to 10, in which the Apostle Paul, on the surface, is dealing with what would be viewed by us as a rather arcane issue today, that is, meat sacrificed to idols. But in those chapters, the Apostle has given us tremendous wisdom as, as to how to conduct ourselves and how to make ethical decisions in a very complex and unbelieving world, a world that is uh, rich in worship of other gods, false gods. And the apostle tells us how to conduct ourselves while out there and, and what principles to use in guiding ethical decisions. But now here in chapter 11 from verse 2 and following, the apostle is going to spend three chapters now addressing not how we conduct ourselves out there, but how we conduct ourselves in here. He's going to be speaking about how we, as the people of God, conduct ourselves in public worship. And he begins with the section that we'll look at today, uh, having to do with how we adorn ourselves, how we present ourselves inwardly and outwardly in worship. Following that, he'll deal with the issue of the Lord's table and how we sit at the Lord's table and how we ought not to sit at the Lord's table, learning from Corinth's negative example, and also how to exercise spiritual gifts, all in the context of the Lordship of Christ and worshiping God in decency and in order. So we begin this morning by considering this text on adornment on attire, on how we present ourselves in worship. And dear friends, this is a text all commentators have agreed upon of difficulty. It is not an easy one. Uh, there is much in this uh, that is ambiguous. The words Paul uses in the Greek are not always clear as to what it is that he means. His logic at times is difficult. And not only that, but this is a passage of Scripture that has excited a number of emotionally charged outbursts over the years, certainly over the decades. I was in Scotland in 1997, and I literally, I, I watched a minister who had the flu literally wrestle a man into his pew. The man was trying to stop the worship service because women there were, did not have their heads covered. And he was trying to call the service to a screeching halt. And I watched one of the most dignified men I've ever known literally wrestle this man down into his seat. That's the kind of, of controversy uh, that this passage can stir up. And quite honestly, it's not a passage most preachers choose to preach voluntarily. And I'll say no more beyond that. <laughs> I mean, when was the last time you heard an itinerant preacher just passing through deciding he wanted to preach on head coverings out of 1 Corinthians chapter 11? But that's one of the virtues of, of preaching the Scripture verse by verse, passage by passage. 
because then you're not subject to the whims and the desires of the preacher, but you're subject to the whole counsel of God, some of which is more clear, some of which is less clear, but all of which is inspired by God. And so I am thankful for this text, and I am thankful for the way in which it forces us to consider things we might not want to talk about voluntarily of our own accord. So, dear friends, as we approach this text, let us bow humbly before God and ask him for wisdom. Gracious Lord, we do come before you and seek your wisdom now. Father, there is much in this text that can stir us up. There is much that can confuse us. There is much that can potentially anger us. Gracious Lord, we pray that you would come and do a work on our hearts. May you give us eyes to see truth where it is. May you make us discerning to possible error that may be preached this morning. And Father, may we gladly receive that which you have given to us for our blessing and for our happiness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us read now from chapter 11, 1 Corinthians, verse 2. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from the woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Dear friends, two issues stand before us here in this passage of Scripture. One is the outward issue, one is the inward issue. The outward issue is this, how shall we adorn and present ourselves before God in worship. That's the outward issue. But the inward, deeper issue is this that Paul is addressing. How deeply rooted are the distinctives of gender? 
before God. How rooted is your manness, men, before God? How rooted is your womanness, ladies, before God? It would appear to us, based on this text, that some of the women in Corinth, and Paul seems, though he addresses both men and women, as will I, it would appear, based on the the, uh, emphasis that he gives, that some of the women in Corinth tended to believe that gender identity was, for Christians now, being new spiritual beings, a thing of the past. And one might imagine how they got to that. If you read in Galatians chapter 3, for example, the Apostle Paul says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male or female, but we are all one in Christ. And we do know certainly from the Corinthian letter that they tended, a good many of them anyway, tended to dismiss all things physical. In fact, we find in 1 Corinthians 7, you will remember that many of the Corinthians, having found this new spiritual hope in Christ, wanted to cast off sexuality, kind of dismissing it as that fleshy stuff. And Paul the Apostle is saying, hey, your bodies are good. Your bodies are important to God. They will be raised from the dead. So if you're married, be married. Give yourselves one to another sexually. So you can see already, hinted at earlier in, the, in, in 1 Corinthians, that they had difficulty wanting to continue on in the so-called ordinary stuff of created human life, physical life. And it would be easy to imagine that they, seeing themselves as new spiritual beings in a new spiritual creation, a new kingdom of God, that they would want to, to dismiss the significance of of gender as something merely physical, as something merely uh, part of the old world, the old order of things, and thus no longer relevant in the church. And it appears, therefore, that what they were doing was suggesting that since worship transcends gender, uh, that they could dismiss cultural mores that, that readily indicated and distinguished men from women. We're not exactly sure what a head covering was exactly. It could well have been a, a, uh, an external garment that came over, say, the head and the shoulders. It may well have been, as, as some scholars have forcefully argued, not so much a physical element, but the woman's hair gathered up as in a bun rather than hanging loosely. Whatever it was, the Corinthian women were, were casting off all of their cultural indicators and signs that marked them as women as distinct from men and, and were engaging in what we might call today cross-dressing because what they were doing was confusing uh, or blurring gender distinctions for their day. And Paul the Apostle has some words to address to both of them. Dear friends, this is not an arcane issue for us because I ask you to consider today, do we not in our own culture, in our own day and age, in this society, suffer from tremendous gender confusion? Do we not? The last half of the 20th century has been rife with with 
a reordering and a rethinking of what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman. Today there is tremendous confusion, not only out there, but there's confusion in the church as well. I would submit to you when you call a young man to be a man of God, he struggles first with the question, what is a man, let alone a man of God? And for women, it's just not an ache for you to discern what it is to be a godly, virtuous woman in this day and age. The culture is screaming out certain uh, verities that it subscribes to. The Bible and the church call you to different things, and you're caught in this mix, in this milieu of confusion over gender. Some are trying to redefine gender. Some are trying to neutralize it. One of my good friends from Orlando, Florida, a woman finished uh, an MBA program uh, in the last couple of years. She went through a whole seminar on gender neutrality in the workplace. As if you could check your maleness at the door or check your femaleness at the door like they were a, a hat or a, an overcoat that you could just remove and then be neutered beings for eight to ten hours a day and then put on your gender and go home. Gender neutrality being encouraged in the workplace. Or you'll find a growing minority speaking about transgender relationships. You'll find this often in homosexual communities, in transvestite uh, sex change communities, where the issue of whether you sleep with a man or sleep with a woman or sleep with a man and a woman, it really doesn't matter. It's a relationship transcending gender, and hence the, taint, hence the term transgender. And I don't make up the term. I've read the term in the newspaper and in the literature. And so we find ourselves in a cultural moment where gender is confused. And what Paul the Apostle is saying to the Corinthians, and what Paul the Apostle is saying to us as well, is that God really does care how we present ourselves inwardly and outwardly in worship because God really does care about maintaining and celebrating the distinctions of man and woman before him in worship. Now it's somewhat vogue uh, today to say uh, that God really doesn't care how we clothe ourselves in worship. What matters is the heart, of course, not clothing. And there is great truth in that. And please, oh please, don't hear from me this morning that I am judging someone because they have lesser clothes or their clothes are, are less attractive than somebody else's. That is not what I'm saying. Actually, to the contrary, the Apostle Paul elsewhere says, warns us against wearing very expensive and gaudy attire. So I am not saying that you need to go out and upgrade your wardrobe, okay? That is not what I'm saying. Those of you who were in the evening service last week know that I stood up and I led in prayer with a Winnie the Pooh t-shirt, okay? So I'm not exactly advocating a major upgrade. But I want you to consider this. Adornment, how we drape ourselves, as it were, may very well represent outwardly what's going on inwardly. I mean, let's face it, among the most personal decisions that we make is how we will dress ourselves, 
how we will present ourselves. Back in last June, when I was, I was, uh, I had a ring in my pocket, and I was planning to propose marriage to Diane, my wife. It was also her birthday in June, so I went to the mall and and fearlessly went in and bought two dresses. <laughs> now. I'm not a courageous man. And interestingly, as I told others what I was doing, the unanimous response was, wow, you're brave. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, I wasn't brave. I was just ignorant. I didn't quite realize the sensitive turf that I had stepped onto. And why is it sensitive turf? It's sensitive turf because... How we dress is profoundly personal. How many times has somebody said to you, or you may have thought it yourself and you saw a garment of clothing, you say, that's just not me. Right? Or correspondingly, conversely, you'll say, well, that is me. And you immediately gravitate to it. Well, what are you you saying? You're saying that, that 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 piece of clothing accords with how you want to present yourself. It accords with what projection you want to put forth, whether you want to be fun or whether you want to be seen as cool and with it and cutting edge and fashionable, or you want to be stately and traditional and Wimbledon-like. However it is that you want to see yourself, clothing becomes very important, does it not? And so, dear friends, if clothing matters to you because of what's going on inside, I would suggest to you it matters to God for precisely the same reasons. What does it reflect? And so I ask you, what personal statement are you going to make with your attire as you come to public worship? What beliefs will you profess about yourself, about God, about creation, based on how you clothe yourself and present yourself and carry yourself in worship? Paul gives us here in this text some very broad guidelines, and I'd like to call attention to some of those in our time remaining. First of all, what I want you to see from verses 4 to 6 is that how we present and adorn ourselves should reflect the distinctions of gender. Look at verse 4 to 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. Now what is Paul saying here? What Paul is saying is this. If you understand the cultural moment, men were routinely, at that point in ancient Greece, men were seen with short hair. That's how they carried themselves, okay? They carried it quite short. And and the head covering, whether it was the hair gathered or, or some sort of a garment over it, it really doesn't matter. What the women were doing by casting that off was they were trying to blur the distinction of male and female, as I mentioned a moment ago. And what Paul is saying here is this. If you're gonna play the game of blurring distinctions, go all the way. Cut your hair like a man. Present yourself like a man. Go all the way. And it's a 
argument ad absurdum, for those of you who remember your philosophy classes in college, he's basically trying to argue to a point of absurdity. Don't you see that your current practice leads you to an absurd conclusion, that you should carry yourself and present yourself like a man? Ladies, he's saying, no, present yourself, adorn yourself, carry yourself like a woman. As I've already said, there has been a systematic effort in our culture to blur, to neutralize, even abolish the notion of gender distinctions. But what Paul the Apostle is saying here is this, and catch it, before God we worship him not as neutered beings, not as neutered spiritualized beings, but we worship as men and women. Men, you do not come and pray and prophesy merely as a Christian. You come and pray and prophesy and sing and share as a man, as a Christian man. And ladies, so too you. Do not come, pray and prophesy and sing and worship as merely a neutered being. You come as a woman, as a woman of God. And Paul the Apostle says, before God Masculinity and femininity matter. In fact, I would submit to you that the more godly a woman becomes, the more feminine she becomes. The more godly a man becomes, the more masculine he becomes. Holiness, therefore, may look very different in a woman as compared to a man. Because God loves his creation. He loves the fact that you ladies are ladies. He loves the fact that you men are men. He fashioned you that way. And your sense of gender, your sense of maleness and femaleness go down to the core of your person. And so to try to erase gender or to minimize gender or to to rise above gender is to cast off part of your humanity. To be transgender is to be subhuman. Because part of your humanness, men, is to be male. And part of your humanness, women, is to be ladies. And thus our comportment, our presentation of self, both inwardly and outwardly, is not in a unisex androgynous direction, but is rather to celebrate gender diversity, to celebrate the distinctions of the sexes. And so I would ask you to consider, as you think about how it is you come to worship, are you going to allow the culture to keep squishing you towards this androgynous, murky middle zone? Or will you, to honor God your creator, to celebrate the truth of Genesis 2, will you, as you bring yourself to worship, week in and week out, celebrate that truth by ladies going out of your way to look feminine, Men, by going out of your way to look masculine and to carry yourselves as such. That's what the apostle is saying here. That's what he means when he very sharply distinguishes between men who pray with their heads uncovered and women who pray with their heads covered. God wants to see you come to him differently because you're different.
Okay, so first of all, how we present ourselves and adorn ourselves should reflect our gender distinction. But Paul doesn't just merely stop with suggesting men and women are different. He says in this text that how we present and adorn ourselves should also reflect the order which he has given to the universe. All that Paul is teaching here in this passage, I believe, is flowing out as an implication from verse 3. Let's read it again. Now, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Everything that Paul is teaching here flows out of this passage. And he continues along these same lines in verse 7, some of the implications. Verse 7 and following. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Why? For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And for this reason... And because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Now, what is Paul saying here? Well, first of all, before we climb into this notion of order, I want, I want to qualify what Paul is saying. And I want to qualify it by the testimony of the rest of Scripture, because I think it's very important. The rest of Scripture is unambiguous and absolutely clear when it suggests that men and women are equal before God. What this text is not teaching, what it is not teaching, is that men and women are unequal. It is not saying that at all. In fact, what you will find throughout the rest of Scripture, if you go back to Genesis 1, you will see that it is man and woman that are created by God in His image. Women bear the image of God equally with men. Similarly, women were were created to rule and to subdue the earth equally with men. What you will find, too, is that in redemption, you will see that it, men and women have equal standing. That's what Paul meant in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all one in Christ. What's he saying? All of us have the same absolute righteousness of Christ reckoned to us as if we had lived it. All of us stand equal, equally righteous before God. Not only that, but women, we're told in Acts chapter 2, quoting from Joel, are given an equal portion of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God knows no gender, and he, he is freely given to all of us. Remember when uh, Peter quotes Joel, he says, Your sons and daughters will prophesy, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit. So women receive an equal portion of the spirit. Colossians 3, Paul is teaching there that men and women, all believers, are being conformed again and being renewed into the image of God. What are you hearing from me? Equality, equality, equality. Equality. E equality in the image of God. Equality in the righteousness of Christ. Equality in the reception of the fullness of the Spirit. Equality in being conformed into the image of God once again as those who are being transformed. And finally, as we saw even in 1 Corinthians 7, equality in marriage. 
How did Paul put it so shockingly when he said first to the women, women, your bodies are no longer yours, but they belong to your husband. No big shock there. Sandy's right. The ancient world, men owned everything anyway, so why not own the woman's body? Made sense? Paul didn't stop there. He says, likewise, men, your bodies are no longer yours, but they belong to your wife. Equality. An equal giving fully of oneself to the other. So equality is not the issue before us. It is not compromised at all by what Paul is wanting to say. But what he is saying is that in addition to the equality that exists between men and women, that there is also an order that has been woven into the very fabric of creation. Such that to oppose the order of God is to oppose creation itself. And in fact, Paul goes even further because if you'll notice in verse 3, it's very interesting. He starts with one member of the Trinitarian Godhead, Christ, the second person, God the Son. He says, God the Son is the head of the man. The man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. So interestingly, in this little description, he starts at the Trinitarian level and he ends at the Trinitarian level. It starts with God, it ends with God, as if to say that order itself, as Paul is laying it out here, is born not only of the fabric of creation, it is born of the fabric of God's inner being. That God himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, relate to one another in order. They are equal, but they also adhere to a certain order. And Paul the Apostle is saying, if you want to oppose God's order, you're opposing the very being, the relational fabric of the Trinitarian Godhead. Well, how does this order play out? Well, the Apostle lays the principle out this way. Men are the glory of God. Women are the glory of man. <clears throat> now, I'm not entirely sure what all this actually means. Let me confess a little ignorance. I've, I can't tell you how many commentaries I've read in the last week. And I'm not entirely sure, but Paul does give us some hint as to what he's driving at from the text in verses 8 and 9, and so I base my comments on that. What Paul seems to suggest is, first of all, it's important that we recognize that men were created first. Go back to Genesis 2, Adam was created first, he's busy working a field. Then Adam goes on what I will call the roughest dating life any man has ever known, he went to the zoo. He's naming one animal after another, and I think I can speak on behalf of all men in saying I praise God that Adam held out for something better. And he did. And God put Adam to sleep, thankfully, and he brought forth Eve from Adam. And what you find there is, is therefore an order. Eve finds her origin from God by means of man. She is no less created by God than Adam was. But Adam started with man with dust, and he directly fashioned man that way. He fashioned woman 
out of man. And for Paul, that's significant. Because there is something about the woman in the very fact that she is created from the man, that she exudes his glory. She somehow is manifesting something unique by virtue of having come from him. Similarly, what we understand from Genesis 2 and from 1 Corinthians 11 is that the woman was uniquely created for the man. The man was created and he's working a field all by himself. The woman never knew a day alone. She always and very directly and a very especially was created for relationship. She was created for the man. Now that's not meaning for the man so he can rule and dominate and subdue. I don't mean that. But I mean that from the, from the very origin of her being, of her created being, she was created for the man as a helpmate. I would submit to you that may be one reason why I think women inherently hunger for and pursue relationship more than men. And I don't mean just with men, I mean with other women as well. Men are cavemen, and very often they, they, they look for a cave. It may be the garage, it may be the golf course, it may be the office. But let's face it, guys, at some point you're looking to run. And more often than not, the ladies, praise God, they're as civilizing as they are, you know, are pursuing you in a relationship. It's a gift of God, but it's part of how they're woven. And so uniquely, the man stands apart, having been directly created by God and alone with God for a while. The woman, never having known that aloneness, created out of man for the man. She uniquely exhibits something. And I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to say here is this. that Notice, by the way, he does not say that women are the image and glory of men. You see, he very calculatingly removes image there because he always is going to affirm that she is the image of God. But in, in worship, there's an interesting little role play that takes place that celebrates what God did in Genesis chapter 2. And that the men are uniquely somehow to reveal the glory of God in the way that they carry themselves and present themselves. And that the women are uniquely to, to conjoin themselves, as it were, to men, to reveal something of the honor and glory of men. And I'm not only speaking of married women at this point. Paul doesn't make any distinction between marrieds and singles. What he's talking about is, ladies, how you carry yourself, how you present yourself, and men, how you carry yourself and how you present yourself. And single, single men and single women can still affirm the great truth of Genesis 2. So how does this impact Adornment. Well, Paul says to them, men, you're to be uncovered. Verse 7. Well, what's he mean by that? I think in part the underlying significance of that is he's saying, men, you need to get out there. You need to step up to the plate. You need to accept your responsibility. You need to accept your accountability before God and to be men. I love the way the Old Testament puts it. When God addresses Job, he says, gird up your loins, stand up like a man, that I may talk to you. That's what Paul is basically saying, I think, in a certain sense. Men be uncovered, a.k.a. gird up your loins. That is, 
get your belt on, pull up your pants, and, and stand up as the one who is to, to lead and to lead by serving. Secondly, for the ladies, what the apostle says elsewhere, I think, informs us here. When he speaks of a covering, he says in 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 10, I think it is, 9 and 10, he says, Dress yourselves with modesty, decency, and propriety. See, a certain cloaking, a certain uh, reserve, a certain posture and, and presentation of oneself that suggests that you are, as it were, under authority, that you are supportive, that you're not subversive, that you're not rebellious, that you're not out for yourself, per se, but that, you're, that you are a part of a bigger project, that you are working to support and to encourage and even a reflection of a loyal submission. That's what the apostle seems to be saying here. For the head covering, surely in that day, and whether it was hair or shawl, was suggesting an under authority. And that's what Paul ultimately says, to pray with a sign of authority on one's head. Finally, if the way we present ourselves inwardly and outwardly is to reflect our gender distinctions, it's also to reflect gender order I want to suggest to you that another lesson, and the last one that I'll point to today, suggests that that those gender distinctions will be reflected differently in different cultures. We asked Susan Nash, Sandy, and I to pray uh, this morning. For some of you, that may come unusual. I'm sad it is unusual, to be honest with you, because one of the things that's pretty clear to me from this text is not if women pray or prophesy, it's when they pray or prophesy. And I praise God that we have women in this church who can stand up and lead us all in prayer. Many women do it for us in the evening service, the worship team. Not as common in the morning service. And Susan asked me, well, am I going to have to wear a head covering? (laughs) And I said, no, you will not. And the reason that I conclude that though Paul makes all of his arguments from creation, from creation order, even from the Trinitarian God himself, even though all of that is the way Paul argues it, I believe it's still culturally expressed. And you ask me why. Well, I think it's in verses 13 to 15 that we get a hint of this, especially 14 and 15. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Does not the nature of things tell you this, says the Apostle Paul? Well, here's here's my difficulty, if that is absolutized. What about Samson? What about the Nazarites, for whom uncut hair was a sign not of dishonor, but a sign of special consecration, a sign of a special heightened set-apartness for God. And correspondingly, what did Samson's shaved head represent? That God had departed him, that the Spirit of the Lord had left him, 
And then if you go back and read the Samson account, I saw it again as I was studying for this. It was beautiful. It says, while Samson was a slave for the Philistines, it says his hair began to grow again. The sign that God had come back to him and that God was preparing him for the last and final feat of faith in his life that would, that would uh, render all others minimal compared to his last accomplishment. Well, if the nature of things suggests, I mean, in the absolute sense what Paul is saying, then there seems to me to be an inconsistency here. And what I think the apostle is really saying, therefore, if we keep it in context with the rest of the Bible, is he's saying, in our culture, at this moment, we Greeks, the men have shorter hair, the women have longer hair, and it's a pretty significant cultural marker. And so what he's saying is, isn't it intuitive to you men and women that you, ought to, you men ought to behave like men and present yourself like men and that you women ought to present yourself and carry yourself like women? Isn't that intuitive? When I was a high school student, <clears throat> it was Christmas, and my mother had asked for a nightgown. I'm not used to walking into lingerie, like nightgown, uh, departments, and I was out shopping with my good friend um, from high school, a good Christian guy. But when we were in the department stores, like Goldsmiths out in California, when we, you know, in that aisleway between the men's and the lingerie, he said, "I'm not going in there." <laughs> so I had to go in alone. Now, what I failed to do as well was to ask my mother a size. And, you know, ladies' sizes are not intuitive, at least not to me. Eight. What does that mean? I mean, it doesn't tell me anything. And so I'm sitting there looking at nightgowns, trying to figure this deal out. And um, now I did know my mother was 5'7", and I'm six feet. So I pulled one off, and I held it up to myself, <laughs> thinking, you know, you can tell height. My friend Mark yells to me, I wouldn't do that if I were you. <laughs> Fortunately for this uh, forlorn high school student, one of the clerks came up and said, may I help you? And I said, oh, yes, you can. <laughs> you know, I, was, I obviously wasn't looking for a gown for myself, but even holding it up to myself, my friend wouldn't even come in. Dear friends, it's counterintuitive for us to be confusing genders. You watch little children, boys are unmistakably, unapologetically boys. And girls are unmistakably, unapologetically girls. And the reality is, somehow when we get to be adults, we get all mixed up. And we in the church need to return to our maleness and to our femaleness, to celebrate that as God's good and great gift to us. And in so doing, celebrate creation. I want to make one last comment. And, and I want to address it specifically to you women. I think it would be very easy, based on what I've said <clears throat> about order, and what maybe not what I've said, what Paul the Apostle has said, is to think that you are second-class citizens in the kingdom, that you, in God's pecking order, are at the bottom of the heap. 
And I want you to bear this in mind. In the world's eyes, that's exactly the case. Because the world ranks your worth and your significance based on how high up the ladder you are. And that's why we as a culture are constantly wanting to be upwardly mobile. We want to climb the ladder. We want to keep scaling the heights. Why? Because we gain greater worth, greater significance, greater compensation by rising. But you know what? In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of grace, mobility is in the other direction. Christ modeled it for us. Though he was equal with God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking on the form of a man and, and was obedient to God even to the point of death, the ultimate downward mobility. Jesus says, if you would be great, you must be the slave of all, for he who is last is first in my kingdom. Dear friends, Order says nothing about your worth. It says nothing about your significance. It says nothing about your importance to God. All it is is God's ordering of society so that it hums, so that it runs, and it is your plateau from which to serve one another. And so you men, if you go out thinking, well, I've got it made. I'm the glory of God, and uh, I'm going to rule the roost. Read Ephesians 5. Your call is to imitate Christ, who gave his life up for his wife, who gave his wife up for his bride, the church. He came not to be served, but to serve. Who, who did the feet washing? It was Christ. And dear friends, we mutually serve from the various vantage points. God's wired you up to be where he's created you to be. He's given you the hormones. He's given you the physique. He's given you everything you need to be what he's made you to be. You will be no happier and no more glorious than in God's perfect station and place. Let us celebrate that.